You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While you were skipping stones, building forts, and flying kites, I was missing school and on my Saturday nights. Other kids were climbing trees and rolling down hills. I was singing songs to pay my family's bills. Little me, growing up Broadway. Little me. Hello, Little Me listeners. It's Mark Tuminelli, and I'm pretty happy you're here for this one. I am a child of the 80s. I know I look very young in that cartoon of me, but I in fact grew up in a time when kids appointment television was either different strokes or facts of life. HBO played Teen Witch every single day. Shelley Long was the queen of everything. And every kid was either obsessed with Tiffany or Debbie Gibson. My obsession was very clear and that was Miss Debbie Gibson. I can remember unwrapping my very first Debbie Gibson cassette out of the blue. How could someone be that cool? She's like sitting in this big white room and she has a happy face drawn on her knee. And I was like, this is the coolest person I've ever seen in my life. I'll never forget hearing from my classmate at Our Lady of the Blessed Sacrament, who knew I was obsessed with Debbie Gibson, that a new Debbie Gibson record was coming out called Electric Youth. I begged my mom to take me to the record store because I needed it. And in fact, I did need it. Debbie was everything to me. And if you don't believe me, here is my mom, Denise Nielsen, who I called immediately following this interview. And if I ask you, who was my childhood obsession? What singer was I most obsessed with as a kid? Uh, Debbie Gibson. You got it. (laughs) What do you think, I'm stupid? No, I just wanted to see if you remembered. Of course I remembered that. Debbie, honey. She was everywhere. You loved her. You see, I wasn't lying. Also, my mom is amazing. Debbie Gibson, sometimes known as Deborah, brought me a level of joy in my childhood that really is unmatched. And I could not be happier to have her share her incredible origin story on Little Me. Of course, we had every possible technical issue with this episode, so the sound is not as remarkable as you've come to expect on the podcast, but who really cares? We are going to shake our love with the 80s queen of pop and the 90s and 2000 Broadway star of so many shows. Deb and I talk about her new album, her new Christmas song, her making it big as a teenager, her time on Broadway, her thoughts on Britney, her career highs and lows, and so much more. So if you don't happen to know her, this is the bio. Singer, songwriter, actress, and producer, Debbie Gibson was born in Brooklyn and raised in Long Island, New York. Her 1987 debut album, Out of the Blue, went triple platinum and launched her unparalleled career at the age of 16. 
The album single Foolish Beat made Gibson the youngest artist to write, produce, and perform a number one song. As a sole composer of each of her top 20 singles, Gibson was recognized by ASCAP as Songwriter of the Year in 1989. She has sold more than 16 million albums worldwide and released 10 studio albums and five compilations. She continues to score chart-topping tracks, including Girls' Night Out, which hit number four on the Billboard dance chart. Her new album, The Body Remembers, promptly shot up to number two on the Apple Pop charts and achieved one million streams in its first month. As a successful actress, Gibson debuted as Eponine in Les Miserables on Broadway in 1992 and played Sandy in Greece in London's West End in 1993. She performed in 17 musicals in 17 years, including the roles of Belle in Disney's Beauty and the Beast on Broadway and Sally Bowles in the Broadway revival Cabaret opposite Neil Patrick Harris. On television, she has competed on Dancing with the Stars, produced and starred in The Summer of Dreams and its sequel Wedding of Dreams on the Hallmark Channel. And she appears in season five of the popular Netflix series, Lucifer. She's amazing. I love her. Let's get electric with superstar Debbie Gibson. Hi, Debbie Gibson. Thank you so much for being here. You have no idea. Any human who knows me knows I've been obsessed with you my whole life. You legitimately wrote the soundtrack to my childhood and many other people, but um, you're a very big deal for me. I had the poster over my bed with the two watches, you know, the whole. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, We're going to talk about your origin story and everything that happened to you as a young person. And of course, hit all the big Broadway stuff, because that is what we do over here at Little Me. So before we get yeah. to any of that, we have to talk about the Christmas bop that is Christmas Star, your new Christmas single, which is so fun and so vintage Debbie Gibson in every way that we want it. Tell me about the inspiration for that song and what you want people to like sort of take with it for, you know, this holiday yeah, thank season. You. First of all, it's so funny you say it's like vintage Debbie Gibson, because when I was working on my new album, I was like conscious of in certain songs taking out some of the vintage me, like the like scoopy poppy, like certain, like this one has all the like, be that Christmas started, like all that that I learned from Madonna, like basically all the like pop isms. So I, I thank you for noticing that because those just fit the Christmas, like it fits the holiday vibe, you know? Yeah. Um, and the, and the song is really like the same message I've been, I've been really spouting out my whole life but especially this year which is be that change within yourself that you want to see in the world and in other people it's like don't just sit around wishing for things oh wishing on the star go out and be the freaking star be the star of your be own that life. christmas star yes yes write your own script like that's really what it's about and it talks about forgiveness it talks about moving forward because there's so many polarizing things in the world right now and i think you know, we don't need to be polarized right now. We need to be together. And, um, you know, so there, there's a lot of, of message in that as well. And, and it's are, just like you said, set to a boppy fun. It's a bop. If we lame. need a new Christmas song, <laughs> yes. because the only thing I really have from you is Sleigh Ride, which is also an amazing Christmas rendition Thank that you. I'm sure it's huge. Every year, you know, you're in Bad Bath and & Beyond and there's Debbie Gibson singing Sleigh Ride. I'm sure it brings you a lot of joy every year. <laughs> It does. And you know, you've made it when you hear yourself in Bed Bath and Beyond, as I always say, like, I'll get people are like, they're like, you know, bopping to shake your love in the produce aisle at 
Ralph's or whatever grocery store they go to. And I'm like, I've made it. (laughs) Um, You also had a very big hit this year with your new album, your 10th studio album, The Body Remembers, which was number two in the Apple uh, pop charts. It's a great album. It feels so personal, but it also, again, feels like these great dance songs. It feels like songs you can drive to and clean your house to and just bring so much joy. What was your, uh, what was the story behind this album? Well, I mean, you know, I, I live in a very real world. Like I live in the world everyone lives in. Like I don't, I don't write songs about like, you know, <clears throat> being on the road. I write about like very universal global themes because I'm living them. And, you know, I just feel like, you know, I went through a lot of challenges the last decade in particular, up until just a couple of years ago. And every like box you can tick of like the greatest stressors in life, you know, the health, the relationships the finances, the, the voice, the like everything went through everything. Every part of me went through everything. And I clawed my way out of it all. I zen and meditated my way out of it all. And I wouldn't say all, cause you know, we all still have an ongoing, an ongoing life process, but and we never well, get over it. We never get, yeah, there's always something else, but um, you know, my therapist is on speed dial, but you know, I do feel like I got through a lot of, a lot of things that like, I was like, okay, these things could either kill me or it could make me stronger. And, and really those things served as the inspiration for a lot of this music. Uh, And you can hear, I think you can hear it and feel like there's a visceral quality to my voice in a lot of places. And there's, you know, there's some aggression and angst and there's joy, but everything's kind of extreme. You know, so there's extreme vulnerability, there's extreme joy, there's pounding dance beats. And then there's like legendary where I take it way down and I'm, you know, playing this piano on that song. And it doesn't get more personal for me than recording at my piano in my own living room. Liberace's so, piano. Is that Liberace's piano? Liberace's piano. Yes. So you can get a good view. I mean, it's kind of covered <laughs> I've by seen it. I saw it live on stage at the Westbury Music Fair in like 1998 oh, or something. I love that you were there. Yeah, that was like a full circle moment for me. So I had to bring it because I saw Liberace there, as oh you know, because you were there. Yeah. Yes. It was so, a, yeah, it was a great night. Me. Thank you. I remember it well. The album journey has been incredible because, you know, look, I'm not on a major label, so it's not like it's, it's not like it's number one on the billboard chart. It's still not like a Dell journey, but for someone who's been doing it this long and for doing what I'm doing independently now, it's a victory. You know, it's, it's me having a shot to be heard again in a, in a pretty grand way. Uh, and in a way beyond it being grand, I mean, I feel like I'm reaching a lot of people, but beyond the number of people I'm reaching, I feel like I'm really connecting with those people. And I feel like the music's resonating. And as a music maker, all you ever hope it's like having, you know, I don't have children, but it's like how parents talk about their children. It's like, all you ever hope is to send those babies out into the world and for them to make something of themselves. Right. So that's how I feel about my songs. Like when they connect and they become part of somebody's real life that's now their journey and their story. And that, and that, 
supporter of my music has their journey with that that song or those songs and that's happening and I feel it and it's it's making it so special for me. Well, congratulations. It's a gorgeous album. And of course you cover Thank Lost you. in Your Eyes with Joey McIntyre as a duet. And uh it's what yeah. do you think it is about that song that has just stood the test of time that everybody just still has such a great strong feeling about it? I mean it's so wild, you know, I make cameo videos and I was just sitting at my piano this morning making videos for <clears throat> People who request, you know, they request a shout out to a loved one. And that's probably the most requested song. And I don't know, it's just like, it's romantic, maybe in a timeless way, because it's just, it's very simple. I mean, the lyrics are very simple. And I think when you have a simple romantic lyric, people can fill it in with their own story. So I do think that's the thing about that song. It's melodic. I think, you know, melodies never go out of style. Ballads usually are typically not about the production. So production is like a time machine, you know, it's a stamp. It's like, uh, you know, even on my new album, I feel like the body remembers and love don't care. It's like stamped, like this sounds like it's 2021, 2022. Lost in your eyes could kind of like, it is 30 or 34 years ago it is now it's like it can be anything because it's it's really about the melody and lyrics that's what people gravitate to and it's funny enough I, this is what i wore in the video i'm wearing it today but <laughs> we know like you love was- you love a look and to like knock into that look and we we got it those hats and all of that stuff that you created a generation of girls wearing those hats with the drama Thank mask on the side funny so- i have so many versions of the hat and i still love wearing it just because like I always felt like a hat girl I feel like wow a hat really frames the face and adds vibes and so like I usually feel most myself with either a high ponytail or a hat on great well, but I was it. just gonna say you know remaking the song with Joey McIntyre was also so special because he and I are so similar and obviously being a Broadway connoisseur you know he's a theater guy as well like whenever we first start talking about doing something whether it's the recording or the show's both of us go to, oh my God, my voice. I have to start warming up my voice. I have to work with my voice teacher. I have to like, we're like in the technique mindset. Like we're in that theater mentality in a lot of ways. We're not like, hey, we're going to show up and be daddy and Joey and like everyone's just going to love us. We always kind of weirdly feel, hopefully I'm speaking for him in a way that he would agree with, but I always feel like I have something to prove or something extra I want to deliver and I, I think it's safe to say he feels that way too. Like neither one of us sit back on our laurels and phone it in, you know? So it's, it's been a joy working with him. Well, I'm thrilled that that there's a recorded version of that. It was so cool on the mixtape tour to see you guys perform Thank that song you. together. And it's a thrill that there's like a real recorded version of it. So congrats. Yeah, it took a little while and, you know, it, it just felt like the right time. And thank you. And then, you know, Joey had the amazing idea of doing shows together in Vegas. And I was like, twist my arm. You're telling me you're coming to my town that I live in. And 
we'll do shows together down the street. Like, sign me up. It was amazing. Sold. It was really magical. All right, Sold. let's go back Absolutely. to Long Island, 1986, before Broadway, before The Body Remembers. Um, what were you doing? Were you just like writing songs and hoping something would stick? Were you doing community theater? Tell us a little bit about pre-Out of the Blue Debbie and what was happening. Right. Well, so to really tell this story properly, like how much time do you have? I have to go way back because okay. it really starts with me at like five years old, starting to write songs, but really like six years old, wanting to be on stage. You know, I, um, I, my sisters were doing talent contests. Like they were like, you know, more like eight and 11, like a little more of the age, but I was like, I want to do it. I want it was like the little tag along sister. And I remember playing your release in the CYO talent contest and I won first prize. And I was like addicted to the combination of I'm doing what I love to do, but people are loving it. I'm getting the applause. I'm getting applause. Like every showbiz person, like we would just do it in our living room if we didn't want applause. Right. So like the whole combination was thrilling. And I started doing theater at like Seven, I did the Sound of Music. I did the Elves and the Shoemaker. I would go and audition for um, like teen repertory theaters, and they'd be like, "Well, you're not a teen, but we're going to write a role in for you." So, like, suddenly I was the littlest elf, and I had a little solo. And so I was kind of known in the community. Like, I was doing like two shows a year. My um, three sisters and I all were—we were four of the Seven Von Traps at one point. We were three of the Elves. We were. Uh, instead of Nagana and Jerome, because there weren't a lot of local boys doing theater, we were Nagana and Jeanette. <laughs> the only <laughs> French I can speak to this day is Vita I mean, that's like the extent of my French. Uh, and so it was theater, 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 talent contest, talent shows, always the piano. And when I started really like, what I, here's when I realized that, well, first of all, my very first dream was to be on Broadway. Like I wanted to be Annie. I went to all the open calls. My dad and my grandpa would like save, well, save a spot. You know, there's no cell phones and there's a mob scene in front of the Alvin theater. There was that yeah. mob scene. And we, my mom and I would go try to find my dad and my grandpa who had been waiting all day. So I didn't have to wait in the crowd and I could still go to school. I mean, my whole family was like, as insane as I was, right? Like we were, one was more insane than the next in the best possible way. And I would go and I eventually over like five years was top 10, you know, and being like a finalist for Annie, like it was almost as good as being an Annie. Like you've got, it was like being nominated for a Grammy, <laughs> right? It's like, I was top 10 for Annie. Now I was too tall. By the time I could hit those notes really well, I was too tall. So I had baggy overalls on and I was bending my knees in the overalls when they would measure me and they caught on to me at the very end. And they were like, sorry, you're done. And I knew you're I was out. done because now they really knew me. I was out. And I could like still hear my footsteps on that stage. Like everybody watched me go like the other nine girls were like, yes, there's only nine of us now. <laughs> and, uh, and off I went, but you know, so I, I knew I always wanted to, to continue my theater career as an adult. But when I, when I started writing songs, I was like, oh my God, bringing new music into the world is so cool. Like 
the thrill of knowing I was about to play something for people that they'd never heard before was thrilling. And to tie this all back to theater, which is obviously why we're here talking, Sheldon Harnick was one of my biggest mentors because I did um, the Sheldon Harnick, Michelle Legrand production of A Christmas Carol at the Hartman Theater in Stanford, Connecticut when I was 11. And that's what got me my actor's equity card. And Sheldon was enthralled by the, like with this little girl songwriter, you know, he was like, Hey, do you want to play me what, play me something you're writing or working on? And that's all it took. He didn't tell me how to write a song. He didn't give me those kinds of tidbits of wisdom, but he encouraged me and he validated my instincts. And that was so thrilling for me because I knew who he was. I knew Fiddler on the Roof. I knew. And so I was like, holy crap, you know? Um, And along the way, I've had a lot of those, like Tim Rice, you know, I've done Joseph and I, I did the, um, this big symphony performance for, for Sir Tim Rice as well. And similarly, he was always like, just like, I, I felt like I was in that songwriters club and getting, getting that validation and support from the older, wiser generation and those really legit writers. Like it's been, that's been a very big part of my world as well. So when you wrote Only In My Dreams, which was your the song that essentially got you a record deal, um, was your mom getting that out? Like where, how did that go from singing in the garage yeah. to becoming the biggest pop star of my generation? I mean, it's, first of all, when I think about the odds, and again, I think about how crazy we were to think that we could get that heard without the invention of the internet. Um, I mean, we kind of combined my auditioning with getting demos out. So like I would go audition for something and we would look on the uh, directory and we'd see music, anything, music, entertainment, music, law, music, and we would drop off a demo. And I was demoing in my garage. I had a four track and then I had a 12 track and, and I was becoming proficient. I mean, now like every kid has garage band and kids are like producing in their bedrooms, and whatever. But back then they weren't. Nobody. It was very that. rare. Yeah. And nobody was doing it. And girls were definitely not doing it. Um, And I just knew from the few experiences I had trying to get music demoed with other people, it was innate to the older male. They they wanted to recraft what I had already crafted. They wanted to put their shit. They wanted to make me think that I did not, that my vision was not the right vision. And a vision is subjective. So I was like, that's great. It sounds nothing like what I have in my head. So I said to my mom, if I knew what those buttons did and what those faders did, like I could get what's in my head out to the people. And that's, I think, what the magic was. But how that all happened was we originally found an entertainment attorney. The entertainment attorney was connected to Atlantic Records, the dance department. And the dance department was such a great place to start because I'm very down home. We're like this, you know, Italian family. From your last name, I suspect you're from an Italian Same. family as well. Yeah. And we had Bruce Carbone and Anthony Sanfilippo and Larry Asgar in the little office with no windows and no budget. Like the minimum, the, like the least amount of money went into the dance department acts. And, but all we needed, and, and we is me and my mom, all we needed was like that, that thing to just kind of start the ball rolling. So the fact that it got the vinyl 12 inch treatment and we were able to get a club booking agent, get me 
performing in clubs. I mean, I was 16 and I would go out on stage and there were people drinking and dancing and picking people up. And they're like, who is this little white suburban girl (laughs) trying to interrupt our evening? And I would start by, this is funny, I have my hairbrush here. I would start by, no, 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 only in my dreams, as you as in a sea, acapella. It was only in my belting it until the place was giving me their attention. Yes. And it honed my chops like nothing else. First of all, they knew I was singing live and a lot of, like there were a lot of lip sync acts in the club. I would be more scared to lip sync because I'm like, I can't remember every little breath and nuance and ad lib I did on the recording. Like it had to be, it's not always the prettiest live in the middle of the night, but it was live. So that was the beginning of it. And then it led to radio and then it, you know, but even like that, that nine months in the club, like I jokingly say, like my adrenals are still exhausted from that nine months. That nine months was like Olympic training and, you know, it was amazing. It was amazing because the people that were in those rooms that I was in those rooms with them were in those rooms with me, those clubs, those people are with me today. And, you know, I would do a teen club, a straight club, a gay club. You can bet when I would do a gay pride, there are people there that were at Backstreets in Miami or Fort Lauderdale, wherever that was. And, and all the gay clubs I've played, you know, uh, around the country. Um, so yeah, it was, it was quite an adventure. And my mom, I mean, I've really been talking about her a lot lately because, you know, as I am in this phase of life I'm in, and I think about the fact that she was like over a decade younger than I am now and running me around, I'm like, I can barely take care of myself and my dogs. I don't know how she did. I don't know how she did what she did and the amount of belief she had in me. And the amount that she learned in order to help me was extraordinary. Oh, you're so lucky to have a mom that got it and was there for you and and figured it out. Because I think that probably has a lot to do with why you're still doing it and who you are today is that your mom was really driving the bus on all of that. But we'll we'll get to that in a hot second. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no, a thousand percent. So in 1988, you entered the Guinness Book of World Records. You're the youngest person to ever write, produce, and perform a number one song. That had to have been the biggest moment as a 16-year-old to be like, I have eclipsed what I thought was maybe possible with Foolish Beat, just still a killer song. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Thank you. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's still mind boggling to me. Like I'm still the youngest female and I'm like three in three decades, there's not been another female. Now young females have been doing extraordinary things in writing their own material and, and, and all that. And again, a lot of it is that my mom was able to fight for me to be able to do that. Because again, I think that there's maybe even a lot of females that are out there, Taylor Swift and Lord and Olivia Rodrigo, and who might've done that, but maybe they still felt or someone felt that they needed that collaborator with them. I don't know. And those collaborators are very valuable. Dan Nigro is amazing. Like he's so, he, he and Olivia are such an amazing fit. Um, you know, so I don't know if they, but I don't know if those it was that those girls weren't given that opportunity to express themselves fully in that way or whatever. It doesn't really matter because everyone's doing their own thing and doing amazingly well. And I'm, it warms my heart to, to say the least to see such talented, empowered young females out there now with their vision. You know, it's their vision. Like you take a Taylor Swift, who cares if she didn't make that record? She broke 14,000 other records. Yeah. And her vision's clear. And however, she's telling her story. You know, it's her story. That's the bigger point. I just wanted to tell my stories in the most pure way, my little musical stories. So that was really the thrill for me is that what I said earlier, I was able to get what was in my head out to the people without interference, which is wild, which is is hard to do. So I had a lot of hurdles that I had to jump, you know, hoops I had to jump through and very specific bullet points I had to hit into before Atlantic would let me do the next thing. So it was like, if the record goes top five dance, we'll release it to radio. If it goes top five radio, we'll do another, you know, we'll do another single. If that goes to this, we'll do this. So when I think about the milestones they set for me, they were nearly impossible to hit. But we were determined and the stars aligned because you can never like discount stars aligning. Like there's that magic that the universe was like this girl, this music, this time. I mean, it just, it just happened. And I worked my arse off for it, but a lot of people work their arses off and it doesn't happen. So that's where I'm eternally constantly grateful. How did you adjust to sort of this overnight fame that happened while you were in high school? Were you going back to school? Like what was happening in that little bit of time? Well, as weird as this is going to sound, it didn't feel overnight. I'll tell you why. Because in a teenager's world, you know, one year is like a 15th of your life, right? So like time is very different. And I was singing like in professional settings enough that like people would want my autograph. Like they didn't know who, they didn't, like I didn't have the record out, but but I was up there on a stage and in their minds, they were like, oh, can I... And I was kind of just slowly building toward it. And when I say slowly, let's say that slowly was from 13 to 16. But again, 13 to 16 is like an eternity in in your life when you are that age. And because it wasn't like it is now where, hey, I posted something on YouTube and a million people caught on to it in a day. Like that didn't happen. It was 200 people at this club, 200 people at that club, 200 people... And now it's, oh, it's just entered the dance charts and it's just moved up to 80 and it's just moved up to. And so with each little incremental step came a little incremental fame, notoriety. And so it actually was like 
first it's murmurings in the hallway at school. Wait, do you have a record out? And wait, and then it, it, I felt it in real time. It didn't just like bowl me over and startle me because it didn't, it, it was, we knew like every piece of work we were putting in was leading to that next level of success. So it all kind of weirdly made sense. I mean, when it got to a point where it was like, yes, there were moments where I would reflect, like I would go shopping at the Roosevelt Field Mall for Christmas presents. And I'd be like, oh, I can't shop at the Roosevelt Field Mall for Christmas presents no. here without being mobbed. Right. So like there were, where, there were those milestone moments where I went, oh, because oh, I this is very forgot, because I didn't live in a, in a mindset where I was like, hey, I'm famous. I would forget and go to the mall and then go, oh, right. I'm Debbie Gibson, whoever that is. Like, you know what I mean? It wasn't, I didn't, yeah. So it was, it's been an interesting journey and it was an interesting journey at such a young age. And now I had heard a story that they wouldn't let you graduate because they were worried of like a media frenzy or something like that. You had to sign a waiver. Well, yeah, because there was like, yeah, I mean, my, my prom, my street was closed off, you know, like I went to my prom with Brian Bloom and there's paparazzi trying to get shots and and so I had to sign an insurance waiver and I, and I made this decision. So this is where like my mom always is a true manager. She sat me down and was like, here's the deal. Here's the, here are the risks. Here are the repercussions. Here's the reality. Like, do we think anyone's going to get trampled because entertainment tonight's trying to get a clip of you? Like probably it's, that's not going to happen. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, I was a fearless kid as most kids are. And I was like, yeah, I'll sign the freaking waiver. I'm gra- I did not come this far and endure like all the craziness of being famous in high school, which was, you know, it was a test of endurance and, and like a test of how strong my backbone was. I was like, I did not come this far to not graduate my co- class. So, uh, you know, I signed the waiver, move on and nothing bad happened. And that's it. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah. So obviously you go on to make albums and do arena tours, which luckily we have that 1988 uh, pro shot of the out of the blue tour, which I rewatched this morning and it is like, it's ah, so good. It's just like, yeah, you can't you. believe you're a teenager, like doing these huge, huge things. And um, obviously electric youth was a huge album. And then we have the perfume and then we get anything is possible. Body, mind and soul color lights. Think with your heart, which is my favorite Debbie Gibson album. So thank good. you. It's thank so good. You. And if like you don't know that album, give it a listen. It's on Spotify. It's perfect. Think with your heart, speak with your soul. Touch me and feel you will become whole. Break down the Okay. So it feels like we're going to get to Broadway in a second, but it feels like all these albums really do reflect the time musically, what was Mm -hmm. happening um, sort of in the early nineties and um, into the mid nineties and things like that. Was that such a conscious effort to be writing things that you thought would chart or write things or were you just writing what you were feeling? No, I just always lived in a very uh, modern musical world. So like, I've always been tuned into like whatever sounds. I mean, I remember like when Natalie and Brulia's Torn came out, the producer head in me was like, 
I need to do my version of Natalie and Brulee's Torn. Like we all were doing that, all of us artists and songwriters. And, you know, I have a lot of songwriter friends that are not famous or didn't have a huge career, whatever. But that was always kind of the mentality. Like I was always inspired by whatever was current and what was whatever was currently going on in my life, both. I love it. Um, Obviously, in 92, you you had a really big moment by uh, joining the cast of Les Mis' Eponine, something you had wanted to do for a long time. You had been Mm -hmm. singing on my own on the road leading up to that. So I have to imagine you were sending that out to the universe. Like, I want to do Les Mis. Oh, yeah. No, you know, I don't know if you know the story. You probably know the story that I... Of course I I know the story. I'm 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 the stand, but tell the people. Yes, I'll tell the people. I was up for the role at 15. That was like the last, that was the last Broadway show I auditioned for because I was doing so much auditioning that it was interfering with my music, the music I was making. And I had to make a conscious decision. Okay, am I going to keep auditioning or am I going to really focus on this pop career? And I cut off the auditioning after Les Mis. But but it was a fun one to cut it off on because I had gotten called back three times. I remember very clearly Richard J. Alexander, who's now Oh, Richard. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, you know, he was like talking to me about the high notes and how he wanted the high notes to sound and everything. And I was like, listen, if you guys want me, you better book, you know, you better hire me now because I'm going to be a really big pop star next year. I said that. I said that to like. And you were. It happened. But I knew, I knew it. I knew it. I was working toward it. I set a goal for my 16th birthday. I was 15. I was like, get me while you can, kids. Come on. And you know, they hired that Frances Ruffell chick, but she's amazing. Um, I mean, and she was who I was emulating, obviously. And everybody was emulating. But I always felt like that was like the perfect role that, you know, because there weren't, like now there's so many pop musicals. But there weren't back then. Eponine was like the pop character on Broadway. Like that little girl's, you know, she had grit and she was scrappy. And there was like, there were those like pop-isms in the on my own, pretending he's beside me. You know, there were those, you could do those little scoops. Now, when I did the role, they tried to take those scoops out because suddenly it was Debbie Gibson being pop as Eponine. And I'm like, but wait, every other Eponine did those scoops. So there was a little bit of a double standard there, but I, like they wanted, they're like, but you're Debbie, they're like, you need to sound more legit because people are going to look to criticize you for sounding too pop. So I was always like, I always felt a little too pop for Broadway, a little too theatrical for pop and was always finding that balance. But yes, I put that song in my show just because I really wanted to do it. The great thing about the way my career saw and one of my biggest pieces of advice to every artist, whether you're in musical theater or pop, just always be authentic. From authentic things come opportunities. If you try to hard to strategize and fabricate and like, you know, outsmart the system, not only are you probably not going to hit the mark and get the role and then it, but you're going to completely lose your sense of self and integrity along the way. And and then you're not going to have that reputation for being somebody who has that sense of authenticity. So like I did that song because I'm like, I'm obsessed with this song. I want my audience to hear this song. And wouldn't it be cool to, to, to do it as like a surprise encore, which for me is easier than doing it in the beginning because I'm someone who has, my air has to go and my nerves have to like get worked out and my adrenaline has to get burned off. And then I can do a ballad. 
then I'm warmed up into it. But I remember when Richard J came to the show, he was like, holy crap, you did that as an encore. And I'm like, that is so much easier than me just coming out and singing a ballad out of the gate. Like that petrifies yeah. me, which is why I was also so glad to know that Eponine was in the ensemble before coming out of Eponine, because I got to, at the end of the day, or not a day older, I got to like stretch and belt and do all the things and have fun with my castmates. And like, it was great. And nobody knew it was me. And like, it was so cool. It's so amazing. I think that's brilliant that they do that for 18,000 reasons, but that's one of them. It's like you, your cast gets to warm up into their, their, you know, lead role. So um, yeah, so I did that and we invited the creative team and they still put me through my paces. I sang through the entire score, Eponine's entire score in Richard wow. J's office with Bob Billig playing. And yeah, they just, again, like I was always like the girl who everyone was like, we want to make sure this is not a fluke. Like I always had to prove myself three times as much as anybody, <laughs> but I was fine with that. Cause I also was like, I want to know I can do it. And sometimes I would ace an audition and then I'd be like, oh no, that was just a really good day. But I don't know how I'm going to do that eight times a week. That happened to me with Funny Girl. I was like, that was the audition of my life, but I don't know how to sustain that eight times a week. Then I panicked and called Joan later and was like, Joan, you don't know me. You're my, you're like the best, I know you're the best voice teacher in New York. And not only do I need you once a week, I need you twice a week. And she thought I was completely insane. And, uh, and she made time for me because she knew I was serious. But, but you know, yeah. And, and Les Mis, the minute I got the role, I went into like boot camp to make sure. Because again, I was like, people are going to be looking to criticize me. And I, and I don't want to give anyone anything to say. And I knew that the cast was very precious about Natalie Toro. And, you know, she got a paid leave of absence, which... It just sets the stage for like so much horrible energy going in. Oh my God. But that luckily, was my next question. Yeah. Did they, oh, did they so welcome you? Like, did you feel. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was just horrible. I was like, everyone loves Natalie. Like essentially she's leaving because I'm coming. Anyway, she was amazing and lovely and, and eventually thanked me because she was like, I wanted to move on to other things, but I was so, you know, comfortable in this. So it worked out for everyone. And the cast knew that I cared. They knew I cared about the role. They knew I wasn't some pop star coming in going, look at me, I'm on Broadway. Like you can't stand in the middle of an empty stage on Broadway and be like, I have ever done and be phoning it. Like you're hitting the note or you're not like, yeah. and the audience is like throwing tomatoes at you or they're not, you know? Um, so I was very, very serious and, you know, brought my best to it as all I could say. And it was, well, it obviously paid off because of a lifetime. Broadway became this really huge thing for you following that. And you went on to do Grease in the West End, which was like a huge hit and came back to Broadway to play Belle and Beauty and the Beast at the Palace Theater. And that mm -hmm. was like mm -hmm. a very big moment. Did it feel different to do a Disney show on Broadway where you were the star and there was no hiding in the ensemble for 20 minutes or an hour before you <laughs> came out? Right. Well, it's exactly what I was saying. Little town, it's a quiet, like the whole show started with me very still. And I mean, that was like the era of me doing a lot of yoga, a lot of vocalizing, a lot of like centering. And it was like really a shining chapter for me personally. I reflect on this a lot because I've been through my health challenges. The health challenges at times affect my voice because your voice is not just a set of vocal cords. It's your whole being. It's your whole body. It's all of your, it's your adrenals. It's your, 
ability to get centered. It's so if you're just like treading water just to get through a day, your voice is not going to sound like it does when you're 27 and you have all these people that can help you and you're going to the Joan Laters and the bodywork lady and the and so I was in that mode and I was in that mode from like 27 to 32 cabaret like really intensely at any time I see or hear any performances from that time I'm like oh that's when I was like hell-bent on being a legit vocalist and I just I wasn't born a legit vocalist I can remember like my voice feeling edgy like I was a rocker at heart like I was like I, I remember singing the song nothing can stop me now stand well back I'm coming through nothing can stop me now at the talent contest at Eisenhower Park, Teen Talent Newsday Contest. And I remember vividly belting the high C at the end and going like, God, my voice is so edgy. Like it's so like gritty, but not in like a cool way in like a, my ad own adrenaline would like wear me out and take me down kind of way. And I have fought with that my entire life. So to get my voice to sound round and warm and juicy and placed well and trilly and all those things that Broadway roles demand of you, it was something I wanted to do. Like I wanted to prove to myself I could do it because I didn't want to be limited. If I wanted to play Belle, darn it, I wanted to play Belle. Yeah, I didn't want to be like, oh, my voice is not right for Belle. I was like, well, I'm going to make my voice right for Belle. And I really enjoyed stretching in those ways and the challenges of all of that. And it, it was not like, stretching in the way where I was like, I need more power. I needed to learn how to like harness my energy for it to be that like very place Disney sound that they demand of you in that show. Um, whereas cabaret for me was so natural because again, all that rawness, it feeds, you know, the, it feeds the character and it, and it, it's welcome in that, in that context. And it wasn't always a vocalist who did that role. It was primarily actors who sang. And so the fact that I even was a vocalist was like, you know, icing on the like cake. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, but I, but I also really enjoyed like letting it go and not having to be so perfect. And cabaret must've felt like a big acting moment for you to be like, I'm an actress. I'm not just a great singer. I'm not just a Disney princess or Sandy in Greece. Like this is like, a role that like you, there's so much to dig into and had to feel incredibly rewarding to get to do that on Broadway in this crazy, like unbelievably beautiful it revival. Did, it did. It did. I mean, listen, like it really, again, like you can't like you, they obviously they wanted names to play Sally Bowles, but you can't stunt cast it in the way that other musicals stunt cast. Right. You, you still like, you have to hire people that have, a certain level of chops. Like you can't, you can't phone in Sally Bowles. <laughs> so, but at the same time, I like, I was like, where am I going to pull this out of? I didn't quite know. It was petrifying. And they called me. I don't know if you know this story. You probably do, but I'll tell the people they, they called and I was sitting at lunch and my mom called on a Thursday. I was with my friend Bobby Watman, who I'm now going to tell him to watch this. He owned Culture Club in New York City. And it's part of the story because I was hired. He had already hired me and we were friends, but he hired me to perform the night after oh, but that, the night that I was going to open. 
So I was like, shoot, I can't bail on Bobby and I'm opening Cabaret, but I'll do like, I'll never forget Neil Patrick Harris sitting on the Culture Club stage watching my little pop show after Cabaret. It was so crazy. But anyway, so got a call on a Thursday and they were like, they asked my mom, they said, can Deb be at the theater tonight, see the show again, get a script and start rehearsing tomorrow and open in two weeks. And I was like, Yes, I'm ready because I was ready because I was, I was in those Joan later lessons and I was working out and I was doing my yoga and I was doing my acting classes and I was like ready. And that's one of the things too, like I say, cause I'm sure you have young aspiring theater actors watching your, your amazing show. And I feel like you, you have to be ready for anything that if that phone rings, the last thing you want to be is not prepared. So it was well, a you, fun moment. You killed I, it. Thank you. I was like, yeah. put me in, coach. <laughs> That's what I felt like. I just watched the like a bootleg yesterday of you doing cabaret, and it was like it was even better than I remembered it. Like it just. Oh, that's so sweet. Give it a give it a watch, Deb. Today you'll be like, oh, wait a second, this is. This no, is I mean quite- when I watch. So when I when I watch, I have trouble like watching my whole performances through, but. When I watch just the song Cabaret, I remember how I broke it down as an actor. I remember the emotional places I went. I could see it when I watch it. I could feel it. And I remember like, you know, that note at the end and all the angst being, being poured into it. And so when I watch just that song, I, I, I feel proud. I mean, I do. I feel like, wow, I, I know I left it all out on the floor. I would love to do that role again. The beauty of that role is you can, you know, you can do it at 30, you can do it at 50, you can do, you can bring whatever you have to it at any given time. I still perform maybe this time all the time. And it's funny, I performed maybe this time here in Vegas at the Venetian and I was having the worst vocal night of my whole run. Like my voice felt pretty good the whole run. I don't know what happened that night. It was just like my... Whatever I, like I turned left and my voice went right. It just was weird. And I came out for maybe this time and something about those lyrics and something about the way theater music that is written for vocalists like organizes your voice. It was the best, maybe this time I've ever done in my life on the worst vocal night of my life. And it was so trippy because it was like, I was like, it's gonna happen. Like I meant, like, it's gotta, like, you know, stuff to freaking come out and do yeah. all of it. Right. But yeah. Um, you, Amazing. you mentioned funny girl a little while ago. Um, so obviously in recent months, there's been lots of chat about this Broadway revival of, of funny girl coming in. And it, it just feels like an unwinnable task to step into Barbara Streisand's shoes in the Broadway revival of funny girl. And I'm just so curious to hear what your thoughts are about that show kind of finally coming back into Broadway. I mean, listen, when I went and auditioned, um, you know, I auditioned, I auditioned for Julie Stein's wife and I had met Julie when he was alive and he like gave his blessing for me to do the role, which is insane. I have a cassette of He's My Fellow, which was originally in, that he wanted in the musical and that was added to my version. And it's him at a piano, but he's my fellow, I'm his, I'm his girl. And um, I, the, whole, the whole thing was so surreal. Um, but production wise, 
uh, you know, it's like I always hate saying things like this because I feel like someone's out there who's involved in this production. The truth is they kind of rushed the rehearsal process and you can't put funny girl up after a long absence without being incredibly meticulous. There has to be the money behind it to have it be visually stunning. There has to be the time to work out all the kinks and for all these new actors to find their way through such iconic <laughs> roles that other people have put their stamp on. And so it felt a little like it was slapped up and everyone did their best with it. And probably like, and so it was, it was short lived. It didn't go to Broadway. I was also, so I've always been a fan of the universe. I'm like the universe hooks me up. If I was meant to be Fanny Bryce on Broadway, I would have been Fanny Bryce on Broadway, period, end of story. I have no animosity toward anyone else who does it. I go, you go, girl, because the truth is, like I was talking about before, me doing that eight times a week vocally was in, was was torturing me. I was up for Elphaba. I was that close for Elphaba. The audition process for Elphaba tortured me. I am not Adina. I am not Shoshana. Those girls are, I am not Eden. They are freaks of nature. They are amazing. They work incredibly hard at their craft, but their starting place as a vocalist is different than mine. And I, and I know that about myself and I love that. I know that about myself. I'm very realistic. Um, but I, you know, I think spirit wise and uh, personality wise, I brought everything I had to Fanny, to my Fanny and loved it. I loved it for the time I did it. Uh, I loved our castmates. I mean, Jonathan Brody, who was our Eddie, he was amazing, stands out in my mind. Um, <clears throat> people, you know, our Rose was amazing. And and so, yeah, I, I, I loved it. And I get to forever say I played Fanny, but I it's didn't amazing. have to, I didn't have to live the, the torture of doing it for like a year on Broadway. Beanie, girl, go get him. Good luck. I will um, be there. I will be there rooting you on. And look, she's such a darling. Like she's probably, she's such a great choice because she's already a critic darling. Already like got the respect of her Broadway contemporaries. She's seen, I think it's about the spirit. I don't think, I think Fanny's about, it's like Mama Rose over time, right? Like you've seen, I got to, I got to do Gypsy with Betty. You know, when you see different, Mama Rose's. You see different takes on Mama Rose. Roz, God rest her soul, from the Belmore Jewish Center when I played Baby June in Gypsy when I was like 11. To this day is one of my, she was one of, I could cry. She was one of my favorite Mama Roses because it was all in her chutzpah. It was in, it didn't matter that, you know, she had a community theater good voice. Didn't matter. She was Mama Rose to me. And Betty was Mama Rose and vocally brilliant. And, you know, she would she would cry and belt at the same time. And I was like, how is that even <laughs> happening? How is that how possible? Is that I learned so much from her, you know. And rumor has it that, like, you know, the, the powers that be are like, Mama Rose wouldn't cry. And I'm like, who gets to say Mama Rose wouldn't cry? Diane Gibson cried. <laughs> Do you know what's like being a momager? Like... Those momagers cry. They they cry while they're while the gavel is coming down, right? Like like I thought Betty did such a beautifully complex, unique, authentic take on Mama Rose, and I'm st 
still like, I still pinch myself that I got to do that with her. It's so cool. So it feels like Broadway is in your DNA. And obviously it was a dream come true to do all of these theater projects. What would it take to get you back to Broadway at this point? A lot of rest. Like as I was talking before, like I'm always on a bit of a stamina roller coaster um, since dealing with Lyme disease and other fun things. Um, so, you know, it's really a matter of me feeling like, yes, I have the stamina um, because it's a different, like I could more easily commit to a TV show right now or a pop tour right now than Broadway <clears throat> because it just takes a different kind of energy. And, you know, I've had like, I've had Broadway victories. I don't want to go back and blow it. So it's like, if and when I feel like, it's the right role, the right time. I'm in the right energetic space. Like that's the, the better way to put it, the right energetic space. Um, because every performer knows like you, you kind of, you know, I, I will speak for myself. I, uh, when I do a Broadway show, I have to give up my, everything else in my life. Yeah. I just can't, you know, I remember Evelyn Bear and our uh, Madame Thenardier in Les Mis. She'd be teaching at NYU all day and then she'd come out and do like she had vocal cords of steel and that energy that just kept going. It's like, no, I can't. I need to like be resting and meditating and vocalizing and steaming and like saving it all for the show. Um, so I will say this. So. I, you know, I've composed musicals over the years and yeah, what happened to skirts? There's skirts. There's the flunky. They're still around. Um, it's a matter of, you know, the coordination of me with the collaborators, with all of our respective careers. It's a very hard thing to yeah. align. And again, you have to devote everything. You can't be like, oh, I'm, by the way, on the side, I'm moving this musical forward. Like every time I put my mind to moving something forward, it moves forward, but you have to be all in. Um, so I do foresee being a member of the Broadway community again in a creative capacity, a thousand percent. I mean, I would love to be in that pit conducting if <laughs> oh I could. God. Like, I would love to be on the other side of it also. I don't necessarily need to be on the stage on Broadway to be happily back to Broadway. Um, you know, one show I've always wanted to do uh it's not so age appropriate at this point but maybe it could be modified if they're playing our song that's always been a big yes. dream of mine well we that's could do like a one night we'll do a one night concert i'll direct it it'll be a big success could do that sending do it little, out in the know, universe 54 below or a little joe's pub or a little yes one night only, one night only. okay i just have a couple more questions and i have to let you go but um having this level of success at such a young age and seeing so many people negatively affected by it. And, you know, I can't help but think about Brittany because you're just one generation in front of her. Um, how did you mm -hmm. avoid some of those traps and those things and, and that you're here today with the same love and enthusiasm you had as this 10 year old girl at the piano? I mean, I'm going to equate a lot of it to luck again. Like it's just, I, I, I had people around me that, uh, cared I mean and look I also had the, the other kind of people like coming and going in my life and you know but ultimately I mean it's it's hard to say because you know I never want to sound judgmental of someone else's situation so 
Britney's situation is so unique. Um, you know, and there are a lot of stories of like, here's where I think, here's what I think happens. It's very, very unnatural for the child in the family to be the breadwinner. It's very unnatural. And it just throws all, like it just throws the natural order of things on its ear. And there are people clamoring for that control and there is greed. And look, there, it, was, it was confusing to me when I wanted to part ways with my mom in business because I had gotten so used to, like she was the boss because I was so young. But then as I got older, I was like, wait a minute, no, you work for me. But what an odd thing to say to your parents. Yeah. So like, it's, it's just confusing to everybody. Um, you know, again, like how the law allowed what went on with Brittany to go on for so long is really where the, I mean, that's like, that's really insane. Cause I was like, there are actual crazy people inflicting harm on other people running free in this world. And none of those people are Brittany. So like, no. how did this, how did this happen? And there's a thing I think like she's a national treasure. And I think that people, there's this thing where people like love to build someone up and then go like this, but it's so crazy that it was her own family, her own people were like, we're going to help you do this. And then we're going to try to dim your shine and we're going to try to keep you down. And I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm saying anything profound about it because no, I think you're feel like, yeah, I'm, pr I'm processing it. still. I'm still processing yeah. it. And I don't think I knew the extent of it until, and maybe a lot of people did. I mean, I was aware, but until she spoke to the judge this past year and she spoke so beautifully, like, I don't think I've ever heard you. Know, she has her little girl voice. I know it was I don't like, think not I've that. ever heard her. Yeah. No, it was visceral. It was grounded. It was yeah. angry, but that's what broke through, obviously. You know, um, and the parts about the medication and listen, I've spoken about that. I've kind of gotten myself in hot water talking about that. But the truth of the matter is there is a lot of a big part of society that says, here's a pill for that. Here's a pill for that. Um, people don't necessarily like put it this way. I'm very lucky because, again, I'm surrounded by people who are very emotionally intelligent and they understand psychological wellness. They understand that if I'm not psychologically well, this whole thing doesn't work. Yeah. The whole machine doesn't run. I'm going to have a limited lifespan, literally and figuratively, if I'm being medicated, right? So I'm at a point where medications don't even work for me anymore because like, I've gotten to a point, my body, my mind, my spirit, where I reject anything that is not natural because the natural signal that your body's sending you, and that includes your mind, is to protect you. It's to say, you've had enough. You're about to implode. You need to go get help. You need to address your issues. You need to let everything that's happened to you catch up to you. And that's what Brittany wasn't really allowed to do. To, to do. And I do hope that now, you know, I hope, I hope to God, like I, from afar, um, her man seems like he's very grounded and good for her. 
And hopefully she's going to be allowed to like take a breath, address her issues. Um, I think it's going to be good Unwind all that stuff. And if it takes her a decade to unwind all it, it's like everyone needs to let her. Yeah. You know, now, let the girl breathe and, and explore and be, um, be the, the, the free spirit she did not get, get to be. You have had such an impact on so many people's lives, especially the young people who grew up with you, like myself, that just sort of, you were the light, you know, in our bedrooms when things weren't so great outside of it. And people have such a love for you and the Deb heads everywhere, just like go crazy for you. But you also give them exactly what they want. Um, Is there ever been a moment (laughs) where you're like, I'm not singing Shake Your Love anymore. It feels like you love it as much as we all do. And that is it makes it so special to watch. So thank you. But I, I'm very thank curious you. to know yeah. what's happening well, on your end. Well, like, you know, I can remember Teen Idol saying like, I don't ever want to hear it, sing that song again. But that's because those were songs that were put on them or handed to them or forced on them. Because I wrote my own song, it's, yeah, it's a never ending joy to know that people still want to hear them. So yeah, to, to, I'm always like, yes, like I'm singing Shake Your Love going, I remember writing this in my bedroom. I remember recording the demo. We we all were there together when it came out. We all lived that joyful moment. We're still all here now living this joyful moment. Cause like I look at my audience and I go, y'all look good. Like, like when I say look good, there's a lot of vibrant people who are like not giving over to the negative perceptions of aging. People are like vital, they're vibrant, they're there for a good time. They chose to spend their time and money on being in a concert venue with me. Yeah, I'm going to sing what they want to hear. And I want (laughs) to sing it. So you are correct. It is a combination that I, I, that I want to, I want to sing it. I mean, I said this when I did it at the Venetian and I, and again, I did it even today at my piano on some cameo videos. I do out of the blue as an acoustic now. And I think, oh my God, this could be someone's love story. This could be welcoming a new baby. This could be welcoming a new chapter of your life. This could be like the songs have a different depth of meaning depending on how I do them. And I'm constantly looking for that in them. And because of that, I never tire of them. I never tire of the original. Like I hear the, I'm like, it's electric youth. Yes. Um, And again, I remember like, creating that part with Fred Zarr and I remember like so to to feel it still having a life now it that never gets old and I can say for a fact it will never get old well we all love it you are such a dream your story is so inspiring you've you've helped so many people people you don't even know and it's just like a, a joy you. for me to get to touch down for everybody listening make sure that you are following debbie on instagram at debbie gibson and also download the body remembers and christmas star become a deb head go buy electric youth on ebay because you got you know you got <laughs> everybody need can I tell you how many boys my age are like, I bought electric youth perfume on eBay because I couldn't have it when I was a kid and I wanted it so bad. <laughs> Including I me. love that. I always joke. Like I want to go like, what didn't your mothers know boys? What didn't they know? You were like, you're like, I want electric youth perfume for Christmas. It smells I like so good. It. it is great. Uh, well, because you know, I see, I like, food related smells. So like, I'm not a perfumey perfume person. I'm not like a floral, like chemical smell. 
I like you give me an almond something or a cherry something or like I want to be surrounded by food or fragrances. <laughs> Same. It's the Italian. Um, well, it's we love Italian. you. Debbie, thank you so much for taking the time today. I always will be your biggest fan. Thanks. And, uh, thank you, Mark. I'm so glad. Thank you for your patience in making this happen. I'm so glad we got to make it happen and spend some real time. Thank you, listeners. This podcast is produced by Alan Seals, Dory Berenstein, and the Broadway Podcast Network and edited by Derek Gunther. For more information on the Little Me podcast, go to bpn.fm slash littleme. And follow me on Instagram at Mark Tuminelli or on Twitter at That Tuminelli. And for more information on workshops, classes, and everything Broadway Workshop, go to broadwayworkshop.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.